There was a young woman who was just out of college, just graduated, and her career path took her to New York City. Now, this young woman was from a, a small town not unlike Greensburg, and the college she went to, that town atmosphere was even smaller than Greensburg. So picture this. She's going from a town like Greensburg to a smaller town to New York City. Some of you, I think, have been on a journey similar to that. Maybe some of your kids have been on that journey. That would blow my mind. That would completely overwhelm me. This young woman did happen to be overwhelmed at her experience. But it wasn't all bad. She was overwhelmed in some really, really positive ways too. One of those ways was that the apartment that she happened to find, probably with 10 other people, but the apartment she was blessed to find was one block away from Central Park. Do you know Central Park? Like, I've heard of Central Park before, and this young lady heard of Central Park before, but she never experienced it. She was blown away. She was overwhelmed at one of the most incredible resources on the face of the planet. She was overwhelmed by the fact that in a city of nine million people, right in the center of this mass of humanity, there are about 900 acres, 900 acres of green space with all of the most incredible resources. Again, with the hustle and bustle of the city, you have 900 acres filled with, with ballparks and walking and hiking and running trails and fitness classes. There's a huge lake in Central Park with a boathouse that you can rent paddle boats and canoes on. Concerts in the summer. And so when this woman found out what an incredible resource Central Park was, she vowed, she made a vow before her and all of her friends and presumably God that she was going to visit Central Park every single day, every single day. She was going to go jogging in the morning just to get energized for the day, right? After work, she was going to revisit Central Park and, and just take a walk around the beautiful landscape just to reset and give her a sense of peace every single day. I'm going to go here. And she did for about two weeks. You know how it goes, right? Life gets in the way. That is a statement that I am increasingly getting frustrated by. Life got in the way, though, for this young woman. Like, life gets in the way for you and me. She, she, she just stopped going. You know, what? she missed one day, and then she missed two days and three days, and, and pretty soon it was... Once a week, those visits became, maybe, then once a month, maybe, and that woman's been there for five years, and she barely even notices Central Park anymore. She drives past it every single day, but she barely notices this gift that she was once so excited about, that once gave her so much energy, that it once gave her so much peace, she barely notices it anymore. You know the culprit in this case, why things like that happen? It's familiarity. Famili do you know what familiarity can do in our life? Familiarity can take the most beautiful things and turn them into something that's mundane. I suspect that most of us here in person today and most of us joining online would say that we are pretty familiar with the Christmas story. 
Wouldn't you say that? Are you familiar with the Christmas story? You know what familiarity can do, though. For those of us who who are Christians, and even in our culture, we hear bits and pieces of this story year after year after year, and familiarity can make the most wonderful things seem mundane, I think, for so many of us. If you're like me, it's very easy to lose the wonder of the virgin birth. How do we lose the wonder of that? How do we lose the wonder of choirs of angels, of foreign dignitaries coming from an unknown land to them and bowing down before a king that they didn't really even understand, but they knew they ought to be bowing down? How do we lose the wonder for that? How do we lose the appreciation for what the Christmas story has to tell us about God and what the Christmas story has to tell us about ourselves? But I think we have lost appreciation. Just like that young lady drives past Central Park but doesn't really pay attention to it anymore, we drive past the Christmas story every year. But how much does it really affect us? We don't want that to happen. We want to fight against familiarity with every ounce of our being, especially when it comes to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, don't we? We never want to lose the magic of Christmas. And, and, and so that's why at, at Charter Oak Church, during this Advent series, we're looking for Jesus in, in unexpected places. Not in the Gospels of Matthew or Luke, but we are looking for the story of Jesus' arrival in Genesis. We are looking for the story of Jesus' arrival in Deuteronomy, last week Galatians. This week we are going to be in a New Testament book called Titus. If you have your physical Bibles with you and and you want to turn to Titus, please do that now. I'll give you a word of warning. Titus is really teeny tiny. That's good alliteration. Titus Titus is a very, very small book of the Bible. It's just three chapters. So if you are turning to it, I want you to know that there is absolutely no shame in looking at the table of contents in the Bible. No shame in that. If you are thumbing through the New Testament, you are likely to miss it. Look it up in the table of contents. It's a powerful, powerful book. Not so much a book as it was a letter. Not written by Titus, but written to Titus by the Apostle Paul. The reason that Paul was writing to Titus is because Paul had earlier set this man Titus up, this young man Titus up, to be the leader of the Christian movement on the island of Crete. In the Mediterranean. So Titus was leading the Christian movement. Essentially, he was the pastor of the Christian church in Crete. And the reason Paul was writing was because those Christians on Crete, not Titus himself, but the Christians that were under his care, were starting to go astray. In fact, if you don't really know the New Testament, the reason we have most of the New Testament is because people (laughs) like Paul and Peter And James and John had to write letters of correction to Christians who were going astray in the first century. So Paul wrote this letter to Titus, the leader of the Christian movement on the island of Crete, in the middle of the first century, trying to correct some not great behavior by Christians. A summary of that not great behavior were were things like, hey, those Christians were starting to, even in the first century, pick and choose what pieces of the gospel message they were going to follow. Those Christians on the island of Crete were starting to add 
human regulations on to God's perfect commands. And so Paul wrote a letter. He wrote this, and we are going to spend all of our time this morning focusing on one statement from this one little letter. It's in Titus 2.11. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, and it offers salvation for all people. Now just take this statement in. We love to put Scripture in context. It's very difficult to take one piece of Scripture and pull it out, because if you take Scripture out of context, we head into dangerous waters. So the context of chapter 2 is this. Paul is essentially saying, Hey, Titus, teach all of the people under your care, everyone, men, women, young people, old people, teach them all to obey God. That's your task, is to teach people and love people enough so that they come to obey God. But don't just teach them to obey God. Encourage the people in this, that the grace of God has appeared. And because it has, salvation is available to all people. Wait, it's tough for us in the year 2022 to really appreciate Scripture, I guess is the best way to put it. So a trick that I like to do is, is imagine that I'm on that island of Crete, that I'm one of those first Christians in the first century, and I'm unraveling this document and reading it for the very first time. I love to do that. How would those people have received that statement? I hope, and I imagine at least, that it would have given those people goosebumps. I hope and imagine that this statement would have given, given those Christians on Crete, even if they were misbehaving goosebumps. I think it may have given them goosebumps because of the way this is written. It's abnormal, isn't, isn't it? The grace of God appeared. That's abnormal. That's not how, I don't know about you, that's not how I would write about God's grace. If I were writing a letter to you describing God's grace, I would not put it that awesomely. I wouldn't have the capacity. I'm not sure if I have the faith to write what Paul did. It's just a little thing for you language people. If I was writing this statement about God's grace, I might say something like, our God is a grace-filled God. That's about the extent of my creativity. Our God is a grace-filled God. That's what I would write, in which the word grace is an adjective in this case. Or I might even write something like, God has graced us with salvation. For you language people, what is grace in that sentence? God has graced us with salvation. What is grace? Verb, very good. We have some language people out there. I know that. I know who you are. Or I might have even written God's grace saves us where grace is a noun, but that's not what Paul wrote. Paul wrote God's grace has appeared. And it appears to me that in this case, grace isn't just a noun, but Paul intended grace to be a proper noun. And that's what gives me goosebumps. You and I would spell grace, G-R-A-C-E. Paul would spell grace, J-E-S-U-S, because grace has taken on human form. 
And that's not the bone-chilling part of that. The chilling, the beautifully wonderful part of God's grace has appeared is what it means. And what it means is that if you want to be, you may be adopted as a daughter or son of the God of the universe. Because God's grace has taken on human form, if you want to be, you are a princess or a prince of heaven. That's what that means. And I imagine Titus, when he unrolled this scroll or whatever it was back in the day, that he would have got goosebumps reading this. But do you get goosebumps reading that? When you read just an incredible piece of literature like this, that yes, came from Paul's pen, but it was God doing the writing. Do you get goosebumps? Do you get chills? When you sing a song like Amazing Grace, are you brought to tears in wonder and humility? If not... That's why we're here today. That's why we're having this conversation, but I will press you a little bit. If we are not brought to our knees in wonder over a statement like this, what it means is that we don't yet fully appreciate what God's grace means. I think for a lot of us today, we don't fully appreciate the gift that came down at Christmas. So let's talk about it. That's why we're here today. Let's talk about it. Let's understand it. Grace, the the human dictionary definition of grace is unmerited or undeserved favor. If you looked up grace in a dictionary, it would say unmerited or undeserved favor. That's just from a human standpoint. Have you ever given grace to another human being, Christians? I hope we do. And I hope we do often. Have you ever been the recipient of grace? Let's think of some some real-life situations where we experience grace. Here's one from my own life. I wish as a pastor I could tell you that this example is going to be about me extending grace to somebody else. It's not. It's about somebody extending extraordinary grace to me. This happened within the past year, by the way. This isn't in another life before I came to Jesus. This was this year. I was having one of those days. Have you ever had one of those days? I was having one of those days where, it, for me, it was back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings. Just all day, I was on the road. These were in different places. So I'm driving all day long. Now, at this point, this is afternoon. I had not had coffee since very early on in the morning. I only need about two or cups, two or three cups of coffee a day. One of them's in the morning. One of them's about this time, whatever time it was then, is the time that I needed coffee. I was running late to this particular meeting. I had probably seven minutes to get from one location to another location, yet I still thought, I'm going to make it through the Duncan line. I'm going to make it through. I have to. And I justified it by saying the person I'm meeting with is going to want me to have coffee in my system or else the whole meeting is not going to go well. So I justified it. Got in line at Dunkin'. It wasn't even long. I got to preface the rest of the story by saying there's two things you need to know about me for this story to have the most impact. One, I hate to be late. I really don't like to be late for meetings. The second thing is I get annoyed very, very easily. And this is where the embarrassing part of this story comes in. 
I pull into this not long line at Dunkin' Donuts, and at this point I have five minutes left to get to my meeting. It'll probably take me four or three minutes to get there. So I'm playing with about 30 seconds that I can be in this line, and it's taking forever. It's taking forever. And when I mean forever in a, in a fast food line, I really mean like two to three minutes, right? Isn't that incredible how time works? Time is an anomaly in a fast food line. It slows down Einstein's theory of relativity. I don't know if it doesn't apply or it applies differently in a fast food line, but time slows down when you are sitting in the line in McDonald's or in this case, Dunkin' Donuts. Here's the deal with me. I don't know what I was doing, but apparently I was demonstrating my frustration. And again, this happened in the past year, y'all. I don't know what I was doing. I don't know if I was shaking my head and furrowing my brow. I don't know if I was banging my head against the steering wheel. I don't know if I was throwing my hands up to God saying, God, why am I so disadvantaged that I'm having to spend 30 seconds in the, you get it. I get to the checkout in Dunkin' Donuts and I think I am the one extending grace because I gritted my teeth and I handed the lady my, my credit card and I said, here you go, ma'am. She said, oh, you don't know anything. She said, the person in front of you paid your price because she thought you were having a bad day. I had no idea I was being that demonstrative in my car such that the person in front of a rearview mirror is not that big. She was seeing whatever I was doing in that little rearview mirror, and I was so embarrassed, and I was so convicted, and I was so eventually grateful at being the recipient of grace. Did I, res <laughs> Did I deserve for somebody to buy my coffee after how I acted? I did not deserve it. And yet I got it. That's grace. And that's just a little human form of grace in a relatively low-stakes, inconsequential situation. Then you turn to godly grace, and of course, the greatest manifestation of grace that has ever happened is the God of the universe sending His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins and mine, such that our sins do not count against us. That's grace. That's unmerited favor. We don't deserve that gift. That's a gift we don't deserve. Now, it's only a couple days before Christmas, so let's talk about gifts very quickly. Do you have an awareness that the first gift that God gave us as human beings was not Jesus Christ? That was far from the first gift God gave us. Do you know what the first gift God ever gave us was? Have you ever read Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 2, God gave us the gift of creation. You understand this? And when I say God gave us the gift of creation, I don't just mean that God created us. I mean God gave us creation. If you read Genesis 1, if you read Genesis 2, it's a love story where God created everything in perfect order and in perfect harmony. I don't understand it, but I know God breathed life into creation. Light, darkness, matter, antimatter, time, heavenly bodies. God created this home of ours, which is called earth. He created mountains and rivers and waterfalls and animals and plants and birds 
and fish. And at every step along the way, he said, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then he created you, and then he said, that's very good. And he didn't just tell us that we were very good. What God did is say, he, he, he took creation. And he said, all of this I made, all of, the, all of the nature, all of the earth, all of the plants, the animals, all of the resources I created before you, I give to you because I love you, my precious children. It's yours to love and to steward and to shepherd and to care for. That's what I mean when I say God gave us the gift of creation. God gave us the gift of his presence. God gave us the gift of his love. What did we do with that gift? I'm talking about Genesis 1 and 2. If you read on to Genesis chapter 3, what did we do with that gift? We threw it away. We threw it away. Now, I don't know about you, but when I give a gift to somebody and it's not appreciated, that doesn't make me feel good. Think about a time when you put so much thought and effort and time and maybe money into a gift. I'm not talking about any old gift. I'm talking about your first Christmas with a new boyfriend or girlfriend gift. You want to you impress. You want to show them your love. Have you ever had that gift not appreciated? Have you ever had somebody throw that gift away? How does that make you feel? It would make me feel sad. It would make me feel angry. It would make me feel confused. I wonder if God felt any of that for what we did to him in the Garden of Eden. I just wonder. It certainly, if somebody did that to me, would make me not want to give them another gift. I wonder if that's how God felt in the Garden of Eden. We don't deserve any more gifts from God. God gave us the most extravagant gift ever, the gift of creation. And because we threw it out, we don't deserve another one. And yet we got another one. At just the right time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the perfect Christmas gift. And because of that grace, we have salvation, we have reconciliation, we have redemption. And so, that's what Paul means when he writes, the grace of God has appeared. That offers salvation to all people. And maybe the most extraordinary thing about this gift, if you really looked at it, Paul, again, for our language people, Paul doesn't say the grace of God had appeared, past tense. Paul writes the grace of God has appeared, past perfect tense, which means it's something that happened, yes, in the past, but has eternal consequences. Do you think what came down at Christmas has eternal consequences? Yes, it does. And that means God's grace didn't just appear in that manger scene in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The grace of God appears all the time to this very day. Every time somebody makes Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of their life, the grace of God appears. Every time God intervenes in your life or my life, the grace of God appears. And it happens more often, I think, than we think or see. Every time the prayer of one of God's desperate children is answered, the grace of God appears. This letter that you see in front of you was written to us today in 2022 just as much as it was written to Titus and the people of Crete 2,000 years ago. 
Paul's writing about the gift. But do we appreciate the gift? That's what this message is about, is the appreciation of the gift. It is really easy to tell if somebody appreciates a gift, isn't it? Any gift. I mean, it's easy to tell. I think about kids on Christmas morning ripping open their Christmas presents. It's very easy to see if they have an appreciation for what they are opening. How do you tell if somebody has appreciation for the gift? You see it on their face. You see it in their response. It's easy to tell if somebody has appreciation for a gift. You see it in their response. I'm not going to tell a story about my own children. I'll tell a story about myself because, again, it's a very embarrassing one. The year was 1992, and I've always been blessed to receive many, many wonderful Christmas gifts. One of the gifts that I received in 1992 was a $50 savings bond that my grandmother got me every year for the purpose of college. Another gift that I received in 1992 was a Super Nintendo. For 11 or 12-year-old young little Johnny, one of those two things has more value. And as I say these words right now, the embarrassment level is very high for me. When I ripped open one of those gifts, I lost my mind, if you can imagine. When I opened the other one, I probably barely showed any appreciation at all. After all, my grandmother gave me those $50 savings bonds every year, so I had a great familiarity with those savings bonds. I hope I at least said thank you, even if I didn't mean it. I didn't see the value in the savings bond. Both gifts were given in love, but I didn't show appreciation for the gift that was far more valuable. Do we show appreciation for the gift that God has given us? We need to take a long look in the mirror today and ask ourselves that very question. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about cheap grace. He writes this. This is going to slap us right in the face. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Now, if you don't see the value in something, the response is not going to be there. The proper response to forgiveness is repentance. The proper response to baptism is discipline. The response to communion is confession. When you and I don't respond to God's gifts, it must mean we don't see the value in it. And I don't want to say this to make anyone feel bad. I say this because I love you. So let's keep pressing and let's go deeper. When our faith is just about us, and not about sacrifice, and not about serving other people, we must not see the value in God's gift. When Sunday worship is about us and what we get out of it, we do not fully understand God's gift. When our prayers, 100% of our prayers, are just focused on, on earthly things and never about praising God or never about other people's salvation, I don't think we fully understand the gift 
when our lives are busy and life gets in the way and the first thing to drop off our list of things to do is the things of God, we don't appreciate the gift. Again, I, I hope this is not making anybody feel bad. I truly hope this is a convicting statement because it's okay to be convicted. It's okay to be convicted. I want to address an elephant in the room right now. I want to address a problem that many people have with the Christian faith. I want to hit it head on. I don't want to leave any room for ambiguity. What do we call grace? What kind of gift is grace? We say it all the time. We very proudly and lovingly proclaim from the rooftops that grace is a free gift, right? Of course, grace, that's a very accurate theological statement. Grace is a free gift. It, it wasn't free to Jesus Christ, but because of Jesus' sacrifice, it comes free to us. And all we have to do is accept that free gift and salvation is ours. It's free, it's free, it's free. So if that's a true statement, if salvation is truly free and God's grace is truly free, then why do we have to serve other people? If God's gift is free, why do we have to know God's word and do what it says? Why do we have to forgive other people? Why do we have to do anything that God says? Why does God tell us to do anything at all? If it's truly a free gift, it sounds like there's a lot of strings attached to this free gift. Have you ever wondered that? Has somebody in your circle ever wondered that or asked you that question? Let's peel the onion back even further. We're going to keep on going on this track. Professor Robbie Castleman writes this, Salvation is a free gift of God's grace earned by the work of Jesus Christ alone. And this free gift will cost you everything. What does that mean? I want to tell you that I believe this is a beautiful and a true biblical statement, but I want to let this statement sit with you for a moment. We love in the Christian church today the first part of that statement. We more rarely talk about the second part. Is it because it seems like a contradiction? My goodness, for you language people, that is the definition of a contradiction, isn't it? And there are so many people that we are trying to reach who will not become a part of our faith because they've been told by somebody else that our Bible is filled with contradictions. It is only the most surface level understanding of the Bible in which we will even conceive of contradictions. We must go deeper. Let's take the next three minutes to just go deeper as we close out this morning. Because I am desperate to show you how the second statement there is more joyful than the last. And it comes down to the definition of everything. What does it truly mean that grace will cost us everything? This isn't some quotation that some modern day professor came up with. This professor is just saying what the Apostle Paul said 2,000 years ago in multiple places. Let's take Galatians 2.20 when Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. 
Or perhaps we'll turn to what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He writes, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So it is a true statement that this free gift will cost us everything. We want God's grace to cost us everything. What is the everything in this statement? It's our life. Following Jesus will cost us our life. Our old life. Our old life. Let's go back to our foundational statement for today. Paul writes to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation for all people. But that's not where Paul ends. He continues, God's grace teaches us to say no. And that is a statement that we can tattoo on our hearts. God's grace teaches us to say no. No to what? To ungodliness and worldly possessions or passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's the gift. That's the totality of the gift. You and I know what heaven is. When I think of heaven, I think of some, hopefully, far off and distant reality. We aren't going to get to experience heaven until we pass away from this earth, right? That's not a true statement. I don't want to wait till I die to experience heaven. I want to open that gift right now. I'm a spoiled little child. I want to rip that gift open right now. That's actually not a selfish statement. That's a true biblical theological statement. You and I don't have to wait until heaven to experience heaven. God's word says that you and I get to experience heaven right now if we would only put aside our old sinful life and put on Jesus Christ. I hope this morning you have an understanding that is twofold. One, us living a new And a holy life is our response to the free gift of salvation. And us living a new and a holy life is in itself part of the gift. It's a gift upon a gift upon a gift. Hey, church, you can continue walking in darkness if you want to. You can hold on to your pain. You can hold on to your guilt, your anger, your comparison, your jealousy, your fear. You can hold on to all of it. But there's a present under your tree. It's always been there. Maybe you've never opened it. Maybe you haven't played with it for a while. It's the gift of a holy life. It's the gift of a new life. It's not just the gift of God's grace, but it's experiencing God's grace.